Hello, and welcome to DE Classified, a podcast showcasing the history of Destroyer Escorts. Each month, a member of Slater's education crew will highlight a specific Destroyer Escort and share the stories of the sailors who served aboard these trim but deadly ships. Today, we're going to DE Classify the USS Leopold. My name is John Epp, and I'm a tour guide aboard USS Slater in Albany, New York. As part of our ongoing series to explore the history of destroyer escorts, today we look at USS Leopold, DE-319, the first destroyer escort sunk in World War II, and the largest combat loss in the history of the U.S. Coast Guard. Utilizing first-hand accounts from survivors, rescuers, as well as the book Never to Return, Surviving the Worst Combat Loss in the History of the U.S. Coast Guard, written by Randall Peffer and Colonel Robert Nersajan, the brother of one of Leopold's surviving crew. We hope to bring you a detailed account of the brief but brave history of USS Leopold and her unwavering crew. Before we get into the history of Leopold, we shall first look at her namesake, Ensign Robert L. Leopold. Born 11 November 1916 in Louisville, Kentucky, to Lawrence and Irma Leopold, Robert Lawrence Leopold attended Louisville Male High School, graduating in 1934. He later attended the University of Louisville, graduating with a Bachelor of Arts in 1938 and a Bachelor of Laws in 1940. Shortly after receiving his degree, Leopold enlisted in the U.S. Navy Reserve as an apprentice seaman from 19 August to 13 September. He trained on board the demilitarized training battleship Wyoming, BB-32. On 16 September, he was promoted to Midshipman, USNR. After attending further training at the U.S. Naval Reserve Midshipman School at Abbott Hall Northwestern University, he was promoted to Ensign on 12 December. On the 28th of December, Ensign Leopold reported for duty on board USS Arizona, BB-39, as a communications watch officer. His reporting coincided with Arizona's modernization at Puget Sound Navy Yard in Bremerton, Washington. During this time, she received an upgrade to her radar system atop her foremast, gun director system, and a platform was installed atop her mainmast for four water-cooled half-inch, 12.7mm caliber M2 Browning machine guns. Following her overhaul, Arizona returned to Pearl Harbor for fleet exercises in the Pacific. Her final training came on the night of 4 December 1941 with her fellow battleships Nevada, BB-36, and Oklahoma, BB-37. She returned to Fort Island and berthed at Quay F-7. The next day, the repair ship Vestal, AR-1, came alongside Arizona on her port side. Senators and representatives, I have the distinguished honor of presenting the President of the United States. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked 
by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation, and at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleagues delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very life and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us.
no matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. On the morning of 7 December 1941, the Imperial Japanese Navy launched a surprise attack on the American naval fleet, anchored at Pearl Harbor. American intelligence officials had investigated the potential for a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. However, they concluded that three factors would force the Japanese to focus their efforts elsewhere. The first was the sheer distance between Pearl Harbor and Japan, along with the shallow depth of Pearl Harbor. 3,500 miles ultimately separated the Japanese naval force located at Hitukapui Bay and their target, the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. Up until the attack on Pearl, never had a navy assembled such a large carrier fleet and sailed it so great a distance without detection and then launch attacks. It just did not seem feasible. Pearl Harbor's shallow depth Averaging about 45 feet also posed a problem for any aerial torpedo attacks. Japanese aerial torpedoes weighed nearly two tons, and when dropped from an airplane, impacted the water at speeds approaching 200 miles per hour. With this amount of kinetic energy, the torpedo would barely slow as it plunged below the waves and would in fact continue sinking until it reached nearly 150 feet underwater before it was forced back upwards, towards the surface. Pearl's shallow depth meant traditional aerial torpedoes would need to be modified. Japanese engineers accomplished this by attaching wooden fins to the tail cone, which forced a torpedo's nose to pitch upward, reducing how much it plunged. Metal fins, acting as aerolons, were also attached to each side of the torpedo, and were controlled by a gyroscope. These fins helped stabilize the torpedo in the water to prevent serious rolls. 
A typical solution was just to load the explosive payload in the bottom of the torpedo, leaving the upper section empty. This is how many ships are built to prevent capsizing by maintaining as low a center of gravity as possible. But by leaving a portion of the torpedo empty, you lose explosive potential. The second reason intelligence officials believed that would prevent Japan from attacking Pearl Harbor was the belief that Japan would be preoccupied elsewhere. Events leading up to the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor can be traced back to the Spanish-American War in which the United States colonized the Philippines and Guam. This territorial expansion spooked Japanese leader who had only decades prior opened their country to the global market. If they remained weak, they may potentially become occupied by a greater power. It is during this period, 1900 to 1941, when Japan aggressively modernizes and expands their military infrastructure. Their expansionist endeavors into China conflicted with Russian, British, and American interest in the region. Following their conquest of Manchuria and subsequent withdrawal from the League of Nations in March of 1933, Japan aggressively increased the size of their military and territory. Four years later, in 1937, the Second Sino-Japanese War, in China it is known as the War of Resistance Against Japanese Aggression, began after nearly a decade of Japanese encroachment into mainland China. Three years later, French Indochina was invaded, though troops from Vichy France could remain, and control remained in the hands of French administrators, albeit under Japanese eyes. Further encroachment into southern Indochina in preparation for an attack against British Malaya and the Dutch East Indies was the final straw for President Roosevelt. On 26 July 1941, he ordered the freeze of all Japanese assets in the U.S., including an oil embargo. Without a steady import of oil to their empire, Japan estimated that they had less than two years of reserves available until the war machine would grind to a halt. A solution to the oil embargo was within reach. The Dutch East Indies, present-day Indonesia, was the world's fourth largest oil exporter behind the US, Iran, and Romania. With 80% of the oil cut off, Japan prepared for an invasion of the Dutch East Indies. However, the US continued to be a thorn in their side. To transport the oil from the Dutch East Indies to mainland Japan, ships would need to navigate past the Philippines and American territory. Surely, US ships would form a blockade and prevent the oil from reaching Japan. It was decided. The Japanese would need to destroy the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. On 26 November 1941, the Japanese combined fleet of 30 ships, including 6 carriers, left Itokapui Bay for their targeted launching area, 230 miles north of Oahu. Devised by Admiral Isoraku Yamamoto, the former Harvard student, and Japan's naval attaché to Washington. He entrusted the operation into the capable hands of Vice Admiral Chuichi Nagumo. Operating under strict radio and radar silence, the fleet of warships crept across the Pacific under strict orders to sink any ship that they intercepted. 
Now, it is possible the fleet intercepted the Russian merchant ship Aritsky, carrying U.S. supplies to aid Russia's war with Germany. However, the validity of this encounter has come under scrutiny in recent years, and there exist few sources validating the encounter. Nevertheless, the strike force reached their target destination, undiscovered, and began launching the first of their 420 aircraft and five miniature submarines. First visual contact was made at 0350, less than two miles southwest of Pearl's entrance, by the Coast Guard ship Condor. Seven minutes later, the destroyer USS Ward, DD-139, began patrolling the harbor, and at 0637, spotted a periscope and began a depth charge attack. At 0740, a report was sent to Admiral Husband Kimmel's office about the submarine contact, but nothing seems to have come from it. Radar operators spotted the formation of Japanese aircraft just before 0800, but were told it was most likely a squadron of B-17s that were scheduled to arrive later that day. At 0755, the aircraft was correctly identified and the Navy Yard signal tower sent out the frantic message, quote, enemy air raid, not drill, end quote. The attack on Pearl Harbor had begun. For the next two hours, Japanese aircraft attacked the naval air station on Ford Island, Hickam Field, and the dozens of moored ships. The main target of the Japanese, the American aircraft carriers, were not at Pearl Harbor. However, their secondary targets, the battleships, sustained heavy damage. The USS Arizona, BB-39, and USS Oklahoma, BB-37, sunk. USS Nevada, BB-36, successfully got underway, but quickly came under heavy attack and sustained numerous bomb hits, which ignited large fires. Fortunately, her magazines were empty as her crew were preparing for new projectiles and powder charges to be loaded later in the day. Her commanding officer, Francis M. Scanland, realized that escaping to sea was fruitless for his ship, because if it was sunk, it'd be sunk in deep water. But if he stayed in Pearl's channel, he risked blocking it for other ships. It was decided to run the ship aground off Hospital Point at 10.30. With clear skies declared at 10.00, over 2,400 people lay dead, including dozens of civilians. In recognition for his sacrifice, the Secretary of the Navy, Frick Knox, announced that one of the Navy's newest ships would be named after Ensign Leopold. Leopold's hull was laid down 24 March 1943 by Consolidated Steel Corporation and launched three months later on 12 June. She would be commissioned 9 October. Ensign Leopold's sister, Helen Leopold, sponsored the ship with Lieutenant Commander Kenneth C. Phillips, United States Coast Guard, assumed her command. Arriving in Orange, Texas, September of 1943, the crew of Leopold unloaded their sea bags from the troop train that had shuttled them across the country for days. The following is taken from Never to Return. One of the sailors asked, quote, Where's the ocean? It's a river, says a marine gunnery sergeant who has stepped off the lead bus. They say by river, swabbies. Welcome to Orange, Texas. 
It looks like the end of the world, says one of the guys with a New York accent. Maybe Harry Dobb or Barney Olson. Get your sorry asses on the buses, says the Marine. Time and tide wait for no man. End quote. USS Leopold, DE-319, completed her shakedown cruise in early December. Her crew of inexperienced teenagers became familiar with the ship's three 3-inch 50 caliber deck guns, her two 40mm Beaufort's anti-aircraft guns, the eight 20mm Orlikin anti-aircraft guns, as well as her three torpedo tubes, eight depth charge projectors, and two depth charge racks. The day before Christmas, she joined Escort Division 22, Court Div 22, Task Force 61. Escorting convoy USG-68, which consisted of over 100 ships, across the Atlantic, arriving at Casablanca in French Morocco on 11 January 1944. Two days later, she departed for the Straits of Gibraltar, where she conducted anti-submarine patrols while waiting for further convoy duty. On 16 January, she departed the Straits with convoy GUS-27, arriving at the New York Navy Yard on 5 February. During the return trip, the convoy encountered one of the Atlantic's notorious winter storms. 40 to 65 foot waves with rolls of 45 degrees were, were recorded, and the ship would earn her affectionate nickname, Leapin' Leo. After undergoing repairs and replenishment, she underwent further training at Casco, Maine, after which she rejoined Escort Division 22, escorting ships to the United Kingdom. She joined fellow DEs Poole, DE-151, Peterson, DE-152, Arvison, DE-316, Joyce, DE-317, and Kirkpatrick, DE-318, on 1 March. All six of these DEs were Coast Guard manned, though the vessel was officially U.S. Navy. This convoy of 27 tankers and freighters heading for Londonderry, England, would be Leopold's last. In command of the task group, or CTG, was Captain William Kenner, who chose Poole as his flagship. On the morning of 9 March, Kenner ordered Leopold to switch positions with Kirkpatrick to Station 5, astern of Joyce. Leopold was the only ship in the convoy with a Huffduff, High Frequency Direction Finder, which was used to intercept U-boat communications. The day prior, Leopold had successfully located a U-boat believed to now be on the convoy's starboard flank. At 1950, on the evening of 9 March, Leopold made radar contact with a German submarine at a range of 8,000 yards. Immediately, a voice chimed in over the 1MC, ordering all crew to general quarters. General quarters, general quarters, all hands man your battle stations. Air and sea temperatures barely registered above freezing as Leap and Leo's crew made their way to their stations, something they had trained countless times before. Commander Phillips orders his TBS, talk between ships, operator Chief Ben Kennard to contact the CTG aboard Poole 
and alert him to the contact. Captain Kenner issued his reply. All DEs remain at their stations. Joyce will assist Leopold in running the sonar target down. She charged through the rough seas and pounced on the U-boats, firing two star shells to illuminate the area. On the signal bridge, Seaman 3rd Class Armand Bergen lit up the surfaced U-boat with one of Leopold's carbon arc lights. Captain Phillips orders all guns to open fire and to prepare for ramming. Her target, U-255. Aboard U-255, Skipper Eric Harms and his crew of a few dozen men are suddenly illuminated by the two star shells. One of his lookouts spots Leopold only 1,000 meters off their bow and closing fast. Harms orders a crash dive and the firing of a T-5 acoustic torpedo. Leopold was closing distance at such a great speed that there was no time to calculate proper firing solutions for a typical torpedo. The T-5 would charge in the direction it was fired, searching for sounds. Ideally, they would latch onto the sound of a ship's propellers and disable it. In a worst-case scenario, it would miss only to turn around and fixate on the submarine's own propellers. Tonight, however, the T-5 would find its mark. About 30 seconds after firing, the deafening explosion is heard and felt by U-255's crew as they slipped past the 80-meter mark. Less than 600 meters away, Leopold is struck and begins to break apart. The time is 20 hundred hours. Leopold's crew was immediately thrown into darkness. The torpedo struck just forward amidships, nearly severing the mighty ship in two. The hull extends the entire length of the forward engineering space, B1, all the way through the main deck, causing some of the watertight hatches to be blown open, allowing thousands of gallons of seawater to flood Leopold. On the flying bridge, Leopold's officers struggled to make sense of what had occurred. One of them was the ship's executive officer, Lieutenant Burtis P. Cohn. Lieutenant Cohn enlisted in the Coast Guard shortly after war broke out, after being denied by the Navy due to his asthma. His father was able to use his connections. The senior Cohn had a manufacturing business which created parachutes to enroll his son in the Coast Guard's officer cadets program. His first ship, the Secretary-class United States Coast Guard cutter Bib, WPG-31, escorted the slow merchant ships bound for the cold waters of Norway and the port of Murmansk to aid the Russian army battling the German invasion. Prior to the war, Kohn had lived a life of relative luxury compared to his Leopold shipmates. He had been born into a wealthy Virginia family and spent most of his summer in Horse Point, Virginia, where the family had a small farm. Boating and fishing kept Pete busy and allowed him to learn the ins and outs of the water, a skill which would prove invaluable for him during the war. Within our special collections aboard USS Slater is some of Lieutenant Cohn's personal effects, including numerous letters he exchanged with his family in the months leading up to that fateful March night. In many of his letters, Lieutenant Cohn urged his mother not to worry about him. 
In a letter dated 9 April 1942, he wrote, Dear Mother, I got the big box and your letter today. It is swell and thanks so much. I'm about to pop right now from eating. I'm full as a tick. It is really marvelous and I do appreciate it. It takes an awful long time for mail to get to us as it has to be transferred and rerouted, etc. I hope it doesn't take as long for my letters to get to you. How is everyone down there? I guess it is pretty warm, isn't it? How is daddy coming with his parachutes? Have you all heard anything from Horace lately? I haven't. Well, mother, there isn't much news. And if there were, I couldn't tell you about it. So I'll be signing off. Be good and don't worry about me because I'll be all right and will take real good care of myself. I forgot to get my license plates for my car. So I sent Kaka the money and the card today. Love to all and be good and don't work too hard now that Emily is gone. Put Anna and Sarah Lee to work in the kitchen. It is time they were learning to keep house anyway. Pete. P.S. Have you seen your Uncle Willie lately? Give him my regards next time you see him. In another letter, dated 30 November 1943, Lieutenant Cohn gives his family a glimpse of what life was like on a tin can in the Atlantic. He writes about sailing through a nasty storm and his fellow officers being seasick. The letter itself is difficult to read due to the ship's role, resulting in some bad penmanship. Dear Ma, I haven't heard from you in a long time. Why don't you write? This is the first chance I had to mail a letter in a long time. I had a letter from Jane and one from Anne some time ago. How was Sarah Lee and Frankie coming along? The ship is okay, but she rolls like a barrel. I have never been the least bit seasick, but I think everyone else here has every time it gets rough. Someday, there is only one other officer and myself at the dinner table. It is right funny, in a way, but they sure feel bad. This other officer who doesn't get sick is from North Carolina, so I guess they can take anything, can't they? Right now, she is rolling, hence the scrawl. It'll be in port soon, I think, though. Right soon, and all my love. Eat. The final letter we have in our collection was written on the 22nd of February, 1944, 16 days before Leopold would be sunk. In the letter, he writes about his trip through New York City in which he ate at a restaurant at Grand Central. This is most likely the final letter Pete Cohn was able to send back home to his family as the ill-fated convoy would sail for the United Kingdom on the 1st of March. Back on the flying bridge, Captain Phillips immediately requests a damage report from his XO. His talker, Bill Miller, quickly runs into the sound hut in search of his Kapok life jacket. He then follows the skipper down to the boat deck where he encounters Lieutenant Cohn, who hands him a battle lantern. In the dim light, it is easy to see the ship is in bad shape. Torpedoes were smoking and broken from their mounts, leaning against the ship's funnel. But Lieutenant Cohn and Miller did not need light to realize the dire situation they were in. Below their feet, the ship was split in two, and was being held together only by the thin metal deck they were standing upon. The twisting and groaning of their once mighty ship could be felt throughout their body. Within minutes, sailors realize their home is doomed to the sea, 
as the bow begins to twist to starboard and rise. Before the abandoned ship order can be sent, men are already jumping into the frigid Atlantic waters. Some with only their uniform and nothing else. Miller and a fellow officer release the ship's number one life raft just below the superstructure on the starboard side. He wastes no time and joins his shipmates in jumping into the icy waters and swimming for the raft. Miller would go on to being one of the 28 survivors pulled from the water hours later. His struggle for survival would involve battling with a wounded shipmate who pulled him out of the raft into the water. His daughter, Pam Miller, recounted a story her father had told her shortly before his death. Quote, Some sailor grabbed him around the neck and pulled him into the water. Half his face was blown off. Both men were trying to hold on to a piece of wood. Bill pushed him away, and the man went under, never to be seen again. Bill felt he had killed him. End quote. Five minutes after she is hit, Captain Phillips gives the order no sailor wants to hear. Quote, All hands, abandon ship. Pass the word. End quote. As the crew begins to scramble to their abandoned ship station, Seaman Second Class Warren Young notices a Leopold's torpedoes had been knocked over in the attack and were emitting smoke. Ultimately, Leopold's own torpedoes would doom many sailors as they tread water in the freezing Atlantic waters 500 miles south of Iceland. Fifteen minutes after Leopold is torpedoed, her sister ship, Joyce, arrives on scene and notices the extreme damage. Leap and Leo is dead in the water and a twisted mess of steel. Her port screw is completely out of the water as the ship begins to list 15 degrees to starboard. From her bridge, Captain Wilcox and the men of Joyce can see Leopold's crew jumping overboard. At about the same time, Wilcox is alerted by the sound hut that a torpedo is charging towards them. For now, rescue operations would have to be put on hold. As Joyce turned away to avoid the torpedo, Wilcox grabbed the megaphone and called out to the men in the water, quote, We're dodging torpedoes. God bless you. We'll be back. End quote. For nearly five hours, Joyce hunted U-255 and dodged a second torpedo as Leopold's surviving crew began to succumb to the cold temperatures. At 0045, all survivors had been pulled from the sea. In total, 28 would be rescued. 171 of Leopold's crew, including Lieutenant Commander Phillips and officers, were lost. Lieutenant Cohn was nearly rescued by Joyce, but as he was being hauled overboard, Joyce was forced to increase her speed to dodge a torpedo, causing the line he was tied to to snap. The loss of Lieutenant Cohn made it clear to the rescuers that the men lacked the energy to climb aboard Joyce, let alone hold on to a rope. In charge of rescue operations was Lieutenant Harry H. Ham Jr. of Auburndale, Massachusetts. As the ship's first lieutenant, it was his responsibility to devise a method for rescuing the crew of Leopold. Ham organized groups of volunteers to tie themselves off by rope and send them into the water to haul the living and the dead to safety. His decision would be the forerunner of future Coast Guard operations 
of deploying rescue swimmers. For their heroism, the following men were awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Medal. Barney Olson, Waldron Chastain, Charles Friend, Eugene Groen, Elmer Harris, Patrick Irwin, Roy Nelson, Wilbur Smith, William Smith, George Vaughn, and J.E. Young. The following is an interview with Captain Wilcox decades after the events. I heard this shouting in the water. And this was off the beam, unbelievable. And I stopped the ship. Uh, and we drifted down on this floater net. There was only two men in the net. We had him right alongside. And, uh, there was a big fat guy. The floater net is, is, is mesh. And he had his leg trapped in the mesh. And he couldn't get it out. And we gave him, uh, 21 thread line, it's about as big as his finger. Uh, and the other man in the, in the net was the executive officer of the Leopold, Mr. Kahn. And uh, he tied the line around the other guy. Both of them had lines around them. Both lines leading to our people on the deck, and our men were going over the side now to help these guys, climbing down the cargo nets that we put over the side. And this time the lookout, we sang out torpedo, and this was on our port beam, and sound, sonar, picked it up in the sound gear. It sounds like a, almost like a train in a tunnel. And, uh, I ordered uh, all I had flank full left rudder. They carried away the two men. Their lines broke. The stern section sank. I guess we were about a mile away. And then there was this mighty explosion. All our depth charges exploded. Oh, uh, I, I don't believe we recovered anyone from this during the section. For nearly 70 years, the story of the Coast Guard's largest combat loss remained the same. While researching his book, Never to Return, Robert Nersagen employed torpedo experts to determine whether U-255 had indeed fired two more torpedoes at Joyce. For decades, U-255's crew had maintained that they had only fired the one acoustic torpedo as a Hail Mary. With all the information available to them, retired Navy Master Chief Torpedo Men's Mate, Wallace Rhodes, concluded the most logical explanation for Joyce having to dodge torpedoes was because Leopold was shooting at her. 
When Leopold went to general quarters, her three torpedoes were armed and had their gyro settings programmed to fire off her port side. Joyce was on Leopold's starboard side when the first torpedo was detected by the sound hut. As the ship sank, the already revving engines of the torpedoes forced them to fire as soon as water washed over the deck. The story of the Leopold was finally complete. U-255 continued combat patrols through the end of the war, but Leopold would be the 10th and final ship she would sink. Eric Harms returned to Germany shortly after sinking Leopold and was given a new command, U-3023, a Type 21 U-boat in January of 1945. However, Harms never saw combat again. Shortly after taking command, he and other U-boat skippers disobeyed orders and rescued dozens of civilians from East Prussia as it fell to the Soviets. For the remainder of his life, Harms lived in relative obscurity as he sought to put the war behind him. He returned to the waters as captain of West Germany's first factory trawler before passing away at the age of 69 in 1979. A month after Leopold was sank, Joyce was once again escorting a convoy of ships, including the tanker Pan Pennsylvania, from New York City to England. On the morning of 15 April 1944, Pan Pennsylvania began to lag behind the rest of the convoy due to rough weather conditions. Around 0800, she was hit by a torpedo from U-550. Joyce and two other destroyer escorts, Peterson, DE-152, and Gandhi, DE-764, began sonar operations but failed to detect the German submarine because it had parked itself directly below the stricken tanker to shield it from the American sonar. But when it attempted to escape, Joyce successfully picked it up and began a depth charge attack, forcing it to the surface. Further depth charges were launched by Peterson, which crippled the submarine. The three DEs peppered the wounded submarine with gunfire, so severe it created a crossfire situation, resulting in some of Peterson's crew being wounded by friendly fire. The Pan Pennsylvania would be engulfed in flames when rounds meant for the submarine struck aviation fuel leaking from the stricken tanker. When the abandoned ship order was finally issued by U-550 skipper, dozens of Germans jumped into the frigid Atlantic waters and began swimming for Peterson and Joyce. According to witness testimonials, Peterson moved in close as if to rescue the German sailors, but at the last minute turned away and returned to the convoy. Joyce was able to rescue 13 men, including the captain, before being forced back to the convoy. Later interviews with the crew of Peterson and Gandhi would reveal that they had intentionally left the Germans in the water in revenge for the sinking of Leopold a month earlier. Captain Wilcox and the crew of Joyce, the sister ship of Leopold, refused to abandon the Germans in the water. What follows is another interview with Captain Wilcox regarding the events of 15 April. Our next eastbound trip, uh, when we came out of New York, it was foggy. 
and the convoy couldn't form up because of the visibility. So uh, they were in, they would come out and maybe two ships abreast and form a long line, a sortie, and depending on the width of the channel. And after they got out of the channel, they would then form in their, go in their convoy formation. Well, on this particular morning, they couldn't do that uh, right away because of the visibility. And I was designated as uh, tail end Charlie, just to kind of round up any stragglers and see that everybody was coming out and so on. So I was at the tail end uh, of the whole formation. And they, after they cleared the channel, they, they started to form up the convoy. And uh, it was slow going because of the visibility. And I heard this explosion, and uh, I knew somebody had been hit. You could see the Pan Pennsylvania. When I could see the Pan Pennsylvania, I could also see two other uh, DEs from our division. One was the Peterson, uh, and the other was the Gandy. Gandy was Navy man, and that was Gandy replaced the Leopold. So uh, they were searching for the sub, and the Pan Pennsylvania people were abandoning ship. They approached the Pan Pennsylvania. Um, I got a double echo on the sonar. It was, about, it was a very small differential, about 50 yards. And I evaluated that as wreckage from from the tanker. We hit them with our depth charges, and uh, I thought I'd got them after my run. We dropped our die marker, and I'm looking back aft. I told uh, Gandy, uh, who had finished her, well, they weren't in the rescue work. To, to, uh, gave him Gandhi the bearing of our die marker and told him to uh, make a make a run on the submarine. At this time, the submarine was submerged when I told him. That. And uh, I'm looking at this green die marker and pop right up in that die marker comes this conning tower of the sub. And it's probably one of the happiest occasions of my life. <laughs> We opened fire. We were at that time about a mile away, and the Gandy was closer. She was, Gandy was heading right for him. I was swinging around in a circle to make another run, and uh, the Gandy uh, rammed us up, uh, and the Gandy suffered some casualties, uh, wounded men. Uh, the sub, by the way, the sub opened fire on the Gandy immediately. It was so fast that I thought that gun must have been remotely controlled. They had a pretty well-trained crew. And uh, Gandy went by, then the Peterson comes along, <laughs> makes a run, uh, and Peterson dropped depth charges uh, trying to hit the sub. That charge said shallow. Uh, and then the sub fired a white berry pistol, which I took as a signal of surrender. And everybody, all the American ships, ceased firing. Well, he was surrounded by three, three DEs, and, and 
our greatest danger was shooting one of our own ships <laughs> as we were trying to get them. Uh, so we, I figured that was my sub, so I closed him. I was right alongside him. Uh, and I had to change the film on the camera. <laughs> so I never got a picture <laughs> down the conning tower. I also met the, it was the engineer officer I met up in uh, New York. Uh, he wrote me a letter saying he would like to meet me. And uh, so we had a meeting. And he told, told me, and this is the first time I learned it, that one of our depth charges landed on the deck of that submarine. And that was damn good shooting. <laughs> the story of USS Leopold continues to inspire new generations of Coast Guardsmen. Their motto, Semper Paratus, always ready, was embodied by the crew of Leopold until the very end. Her crew was part of the best trained fighting force in the world. They continued their fight after being struck by a torpedo until the order to abandon ship reached them. Leopold's own torpedoes continued the fight even after their human counterparts had made the plunge into the Atlantic, firing off into oblivion, searching for a target. It is considered by many to be a miracle anyone survived the near-freezing temperatures of the ocean. For hours, the men battled the urge to fall asleep as their bodies began shutting down. But their training and will to survive to fight another day kept them going until Joyce dragged their frozen bodies over her rails to safety. Thank you for listening to DE Classified. This podcast is brought to you by the Destroyer Escort Historical Museum aboard USS Slater. You can find a transcript of this episode, accompanying photos, and a bibliography at ussslater.org forward slash DE classified. My name is John Epp, and we'll see you next month when we DE classify USS Richard M. Rowell.